right, two, three, tap left and start all over again. If you practice what? all of these dances, you do Hi. It's 6.30 and WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I want to thank Kristen for a marvelous 30 minutes of, of I guess, an anti-exercise conglomerate, which we call Move Your Ass. Only happens on Thursdays. Thursdays, now used, it used to happen five days a week, right? Four, yep. Four, four days a week. Uh, maybe we should just do it year-round, but <clears throat> we're working on... Uh, Reinventing the wheel, even while it's rolling down hill, right? This is our wolf, our wolf filling in for Mike Perini. The show is Pandora's Lunchbox. Show about food and culture and the human condition. I'm going to read to you from a book that I picked up when I was nine or ten years old. I think it was the first time I ever went to New York City. And at that time, I don't know if this is still the case, but at that time, the uh, New York Public Library was equipped with a well-stocked library. And I picked up on a uh, marvelous compilation of the complete nonsense of Edward Lear, edited by Holbrook Jackson. And so it's... um, still with me. In fact, it's one of the most important forces in my life was right up there with the first Surrealist Manifesto. So here we have, and it does have plenty of food references, so it belongs on this show, the story of the four little children who went round the world by Edward Lear. Once upon a time, a long while ago, there were four little people whose names were Violet, Slingsby, Guy, and Lionel. And they all thought they should like to see the world. So they bought a large boat to sail quite round the world by sea. And then they were to come back on the other side by land. The boat was painted blue with green spots, and the sail was yellow with red stripes. And when they set off, they only took a small cat to steer and look after the boat, besides an elderly quangle-wangle who had to cook dinner and make the tea, for which purposes they took a large kettle. For the first ten days they sailed on beautifully and found plenty to eat, as there were lots of fish, and they had only to take them out of the sea with a long spoon. When the quangle-wangle instantly cooked them and the pussycat was fed with the bones, with which she expressed herself pleased on the whole, so that all the party were very happy. During the daytime, Violet chiefly occupied herself in putting salt water into the churn, while her three brothers churned it violently, in the hope that it would turn into butter, which it seldom, if ever, did. And in the evening, they all retired into the tea kettle, where they all managed to sleep very comfortably, while Pussy and the Quangle-Wangle managed the boat. 
After a time, they saw some land at a distance. And when they came to it, they found it was an island made of water, quite surrounded by earth. Besides that, it was bordered by effinescent isthmuses with the great gulf stream running about all over it, so that it was perfectly beautiful and contained only a single tree, 503 feet high. When they had landed, they walked about, but found to their great surprise that the island was quite full of veal cutlets and chocolate drops and nothing else. So they all climbed up the single high tree to discover, if possible, if there were any people. But having remained on the top of the tree for a week and not seeing anybody, they naturally concluded that there were no inhabitants And accordingly, when they came down, they loaded the boat with 2,000 veal cutlets and a million of chocolate drops, and these afforded them sustenance for more than a month, during which time they pursued their voyage with the utmost delight and apathy. After this, they came to a shore where there were no less than 65 great red parrots with blue tails, sitting on a rail all of a row and all fast asleep. And I am sorry to say that the pussycat and the quangle-wangle crept softly and bit off the tail feathers of all of the 65 parrots, for which Violet reproved them both severely. Notwithstanding which, she proceeded to insert all the feathers, 260 in number, in her bonnet, thereby causing it to have a lovely and glittering appearance, highly prepossessing and efficacious. The next thing that happened to them was in a narrow part of the sea, which was so entirely full of fishes that the boat could go no further. So they remained there about six weeks, till they had eaten nearly all of the fishes, which were soles, and already cooked and covered with shrimp sauce, so that there was no trouble whatever. And as the few fishes that remained uneaten complained of the cold, as well as of the difficulty they had in getting any sleep on account of the extreme noise made by the arctic bears and the tropical turnspits which frequented the neighborhood in great numbers, Violet most amiably knitted a small woolen frock for several of the fishes, and Slingsby administered some opium drops to them, through which kindness they became quite warm and slept soundly. Then they came to a country which is wholly covered with immense orange trees of a vast size and quite full of fruit. So they all landed, taking with them the tea kettle and tending to gather some of the oranges and place them in it. 
But while they were busy about this, a most dreadfully high wind rose and blew out most of the parrot tail feathers from Violet's bonnet. That, however, was nothing compared with the calamity of the oranges falling down on their heads by millions and millions, which thumped and bumped and bumped and thrumped them all so seriously that they were obliged to run as hard as they could for their lives. Besides that, the sound of the oranges rattling on the tea kettle was of the most fearful and amazing nature. Nevertheless, they got safely to the boat, although considerably vexed and hurt, and the quangle-wangle's right foot was so knocked about that he had to sit with his head in his slipper for at least a week. This event made them all for a time rather melancholy, and perhaps they might never have become less so had not Lionel, with the most praiseworthy devotion and perseverance, continued to stand on one leg and whistle to them in a loud and lively manner, which diverted the whole party so extremely that they gradually recovered their spirits and agreed that whenever they should reach home, they would subscribe towards a testimonial to Lionel, entirely made of ginger gingerbread and raspberries as an earnest token of their sincere and grateful infection. After sailing on calmly for several more days, they came to another country where they were much pleased and surprised to see a countless multitude of white mice with red eyes, all sitting in a great circle, slowly eating custard pudding with the most satisfactory and polite demeanor. And as the four travelers were rather hungry, being tired of eating nothing but soles and oranges for so long a period, they held a council as to the propriety of asking the mice for some of their pudding in a humble and affecting manner, by which they could hardly be otherwise than gratified. It was agreed, therefore, that Guy should go and ask the mice, which he did immediately, and the result was that they gave a walnut shell only half full of custard diluted with water. Now this displeased Guy, who said, Out of such a lot of pudding as you have got, I must say you might have spared a somewhat larger quantity. But no sooner had he finished speaking than all the mice turned round at once and sneezed at him in an appalling and vindictive manner, and it is impossible to imagine a more scroobious and unpleasant sound than that caused by the simultaneous sneezing of many millions of angry mice. Guy rushed back to the boat, having first shied his cap into the middle of the custard pudding, by which means he completely spoiled the mice's dinner. By and by, the four children came to a country where there were no houses, but only an incredibly innumerable number of large bottles without corks, and of a dazzling and sweetly susceptible blue color. Each of these blue bottles contained a blue bottle fly, and all of these interesting animals live continually together in the most copious and rural harmony, nor perhaps in many parts of the world is such perfect and abject happiness to be found. 
Violet and Slingsby and Guy and Lionel were greatly struck with this singular and instructive settlement, and having previously asked permission of the blue bottle flies, which was most courteously granted, the boat was drawn up to the shore, and they proceeded to make tea in front of the bottles. But as they had no tea leaves, they merely placed some pebbles in the hot water, and the quangle-wangle played some tunes over it on an accordion, by which, of course, tea was made directly and of the very best quality. The four children then entered into conversation with the blue-bottle flies, who discoursed in a placid and genteel manner, though with a slightly buzzing accent, chiefly owing to the fact that they each held a small clothes brush between their teeth, which naturally occasioned a fizzy, extraneous utterance. Why, said Violet, would you kindly inform us, do you reside in bottles? And if in bottles at all, why not rather in green or purple or indeed in yellow bottles? To which questions a very aged blue-bottle fly answered, We found the bottles here all ready to live in, that is to say our great-great-great-great-great-grandfathers did, so we occupied them at once. And when the winter comes on, we turn the bottles upside down and consequently rarely feel the cold at all. And you know very well that this could not be the case with bottles of any other color than blue. Of course it could not, said Slingsby, but if we may take the liberty of inquiring, on what do you chiefly subsist? Mainly on oyster patties, said the blue bottle fly, and when these are scarce, on raspberry vinegar and Russian leather boiled down to a jelly. How delicious, said Guy, to which Lionel added, Huzz, and all the blue bottle flies said, Buzz. At this time, an elderly fly said it was the hour of the evening song to be sung, and on a signal being given, all the blue bottle flies began to buzz at once in a sumptuous and sonorous manner. The melodious and mucilaginous sounds echoing all over the waters and resounding across the tumultuous tops of the transitory titmice upon the intervening and verdant mountains with a serene and sickly suavity only known to the truly virtuous. The moon was shining slobaciously from the star-besprinkled sky, while her light irrigated the smooth and shiny sides and wings and backs of the blue bottle flies with a peculiar and trivial splendor, while all nature cheerfully responded to the cerulean and conspicuous circumstances. In many long after years, the four little travelers looked back to that evening as one of the happiest in all their lives. And it was already past midnight when, the sail of the boat having been set up by the quangle-wangle, the tea kettle and churn placed in their respective positions, and the pussycat stationed at the helm, the children each took a last and affectionate farewell of the blue-bottle flies, who walked down in a body to the water's edge to see the travelers embark. As a token of parting respect and esteem, Violet made a curtsy quite down to the ground, 
and stuck one of her few remaining parrot tail feathers into the back hair of the most pleasing of the blue bottle flies, while Slingsby, Guy, and Lionel offered them three small boxes containing respectively black pins, dried figs, and Epsom salts. And thus they left that happy shore forever. Overcome by their feelings, the four little travelers instantly jumped into the tea kettle and fell fast asleep. But all along the shore for many hours, there was a distinctly heard a sound of severely suppressed sobs and a vague multitude of living creatures using their pocket handkerchiefs in a subdued simultaneous snuffle lingering sadly along the walloping waves as the boat sailed farther and farther away from the land of the happy blue bottle flies. Nothing particular occurred for some days after these events, except that as the travelers were passing a low tract of sand, they perceived an unusual and gratifying spectacle, namely a large number of crabs and crawfish, perhaps six or seven hundred, sitting by the waterside and endeavoring to disentangle a vast heap of pale pink worsted, which they moistened at intervals with a fluid composed of lavender water and white wine neju. Can we be of any service to you, O crusty crabbies, said the four children. Thank you kindly, said the crabs consecutively. We are trying to make some worsted mittens, but do not know how. On which Violet, who was perfectly acquainted with the art of mitten-making, said to the crabs, Do your claws unscrew, or are they fixtures? They are all made to unscrew, said the crabs, and forthwith they deposited a great pile of claws close to the boat, with which Violet uncombed all the pale pink worsted, and then made the loveliest mittens with it you can imagine. These, the crabs, having resumed and screwed on their claws, placed cheerfully upon their wrists and walked away rapidly on their hind legs, warbling songs with a silvery voice and in a minor key. After this, the four little people sailed on again until they came to a vast and wide plain of astonishing dimensions, on which nothing whatever could be discovered at first. But as the travelers walked onward, there appeared in the extreme and dim distance a single object, on which a nearer approach and an accurately curtaneous inspection seemed to be somebody in a large white wig sitting on an armchair made of sponge cakes and oyster shells. It does not quite look like a human being, said Violet doubtfully, nor could they make out what it really was, till the quangle-wangle who had previously been round the world exclaimed softly in a loud voice, It is the cooperative cauliflower. So in truth it was, and they soon found that what they had taken for an immense wig was in reality the top of the cauliflower, and that he had no fate at all, being able to walk tolerably well with a fluctuating and graceful movement on a single cabbage stalk, an accomplishment which naturally saved him the expense of stockings and shoes. 
Presently, while the whole party from the boat was gazing at him with mingled affection and disgust, he suddenly arose and in a somewhat plumdomphious manner hurried off towards the setting sun, his steps supported by two superincumbent confidential cucumbers and a large number of water wagtails proceeding in advance of him by three and three in a row till he finally disappeared on the brink of the western sky in a crystal cloud of sudorific sand. So remarkable a sight, of course, impressed the four children very deeply, and they returned immediately to their boat with a strong sense of undeveloped asthma and a great appetite. Shortly after this, the travelers were obliged to sail directly below some high overhanging rocks, from the top of one of which a particularly odious little boy dressed in rose-colored knickerbockers and with a pewter plate upon his head threw an enormous pumpkin at the boat, by which it was instantly upset. But this upsetting was of no consequence because all the party knew how to swim very well and in fact they preferred swimming about till after the moon rose when the water growing chilly they spontaneously entered the boat. Meanwhile the quangle wangle threw back the pumpkin with immense force so that it hit the rocks where the malicious little boy in rose-colored knickerbockers was sitting when, being quite full of lucifer matches, the pumpkin exploded surreptitiously into a thousand bits, whereupon the rocks instantly took fire, and the odious little boy became unpleasantly hotter and hotter and hotter, till his knickerbockers were turned quite green, and his nose was burned off. Two or three days after this had happened, they came to another place where they found nothing at all except some wide and deep pits full of mulberry jam. This was the property of the tiny yellow-nosed apes who abound in these districts and who stored up the mulberry jam for their food in winter when they mixed it with pellucid pale periwinkle soup and served it out in Wedgwood China bowls, which grow freely over that part of the country. Only one of the yellow-nosed apes was on the spot and he was fast asleep. Yet the four travelers in the Quangle Wangle and Pussy were so terrified by the violence and sanguinary sound of his snoring that they merely took a small cupful of the jam and returned to re-embark in their boat without delay. What was their horror on seeing the boat, including the churn and the tea kettle, in the mouth of an enormous seas piter? an aquatic and ferocious creature truly dreadful to behold, and happily only met with in those excessive longitudes. In a moment, the beautiful boat was bitten into 55,000 million hundred billion bits, and it instantly became quite clear that Violet, Slingsby, Guy, and Lionel could no longer preliminate their voyage by sea. The four travelers were therefore obliged to resolve on pursuing their wanderings by land, and very fortunately there happened to pass by at that moment an elderly rhinoceros, on which they seized, and all four mounting on his back, 
the Quangle Wangle sitting on his horn and holding on by his ears, and the Pussycat swinging at the end of his tail. They set off having only four small beans and three pounds of mashed potatoes to last through their whole journey. They were, however, able to catch numbers of the chickens and turkeys and other birds who incessantly alighted on the head of the rhinoceros for the purpose of gathering the seeds of the rhododendron plants which grew there. And these creatures they cooked in the most translucent and satisfactory manner by means of a fire lighted on the end of the rhinoceros's back. A crowd of kangaroos and gigantic cranes accompanied them from feelings of curiosity and complacency so that they were never at a loss for company and went onward as if it were in a sort of profuse and triumphant procession. Thus, in less than 18 weeks, they all arrived safely at home where they were received by their admiring relatives with joy tempered with contempt and where they finally resolved to carry out the rest of their traveling plans at some more favorable opportunity. As for the rhinoceros, in token of their grateful adherence, they had him stuffed directly and set him up outside the door of their father's house as a diaphanous door scraper. not a nice ending at all. It's a, uh, the story of the four little children who went round the world by Edward Lear. Uh, one of my primary role models, along with Harpo Marx, Andre Breton. Oh, there's a few dozen more. Billy Holiday, I guess, a good role model. This is Arwolf Arwolf filling in for Mike Perini. It's about five minutes in front of seven o'clock. which is when I'll start playing those lovely old records for you. From the 1920s. But first, here's a word from Charles Ives. This is an actual recording of Charles Ives, recorded in 1943 during the Second World War. Uh, rare recordings that were dug up and issued by the uh, CRI label a few years back. So it's fascinating to hear one of the most unusual, singular, and uh, may I even say eccentric and creative and inventive composers of the 20th century pounding the piano and singing... Uh, at the top of his lungs. This is the, uh, the first take. I like it. It's an aborted take of They Are There. There's a time in many a life when he's
Me too. <clears throat> that's uh, that's one of our national slogans. Oh, I'm stuck. I think another national slogan is, if you're so smart, how come you're not rich? Isn't that one of our slogans? I think it's printed on the flag somewhere in one of those stripes in invisible ink. It's becoming more visible every day. This is Radio Free Ann Arbor, where uh, listener-supported and student-run radio at the University of Michigan. It's experimental, experiential radio an ongoing educational experiment. It's been on the public airwaves since 1972, WCBN FM Ann Arbor. The Ann Arbor community and U of M staffers closely involved every step of the way in helping U of M students to, um, to be as creative and imaginative as humanly possible thinking a lot about someone that uh, used to, in some ways, however uh, remotely, oversee WCBN, and that is Hazen Schumacher. And people are mourning the uh, the passing of Hazen recently. And I just thought it would be good to... I was already planning on doing this with this show anyway for the next few weeks. I've been thinking I should get back to just playing some really... Uh, sort of the bedrock traditional jazz records and work my way up into some uh, Eddie Condon and Jack Teagarden and Big Spiderback and Max Kaminsky and Bud Freeman, people like that. A lot of the Commodore record label type material, but really starting much earlier at first. And I was already planning on doing this. And then, and then uh, Lindsay told me over the weekend that Hazen had just passed. So naturally, I want to dedicate tonight's broadcast to Hazen Schumacher. He's a great inspiration to myself and many others. And uh, really, this series, which will go on for the rest of the summer, um, all these records uh, we air for Dave Crippen and Hazen Schumacher, two of our great mentors in this community, and uh, and all the other mentors. We love you all, uh, those who are still with us and those who are in spirit. So let's begin uh, in 1922. This is the Friars Society Orchestra with the Farewell Blues. Another way of saying, hello, I must be going. <laughs> 